All right, Genesis 7. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I've found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every, every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the days, after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, on the seventeenth day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of the three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark and he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. That's right. I won't fall. It's all good. Just put it in the middle. So, you ever been in a, in a moment that just didn't start out very well? Well, like been in a conversation that you sort of like rehearsed in your head about how it was going to go, and then you're in the conversation, and it's just not going how you would have wanted it? Or have you ever planned a vacation, and it just didn't go the way that you had planned for it 
Like the things that are happening weren't on the schedule or, I don't know, even like a trip to Hy-Vee or Target or, I don't know, church. And it just isn't going the way. Nobody's ever experienced that in the house today, so that's just good to know. Or even like a, just like a day that didn't go well. It just, did, it just didn't start off very well. And you're kind of in the place where you would just like to kind of start it all over again and just like try again tomorrow. You just have to know that in the book of Genesis, one of the things that we see is that early on, it's just not going very well for God. But he's created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in it, and it's just not worked out very well. In my Bible, Genesis chapter 6 is on page 49. There's like a thousand pages in my Bible, and we're on page 49, and it's not going very well. In Genesis chapter 6, uh, we see that the thoughts of the heart of humankind was only evil all the time. The thoughts of the heart of humankind was only evil all the time. That's a lot different than hopping in the minivan and trying to get to Omaha, and then at midnight in Sioux City, you pop a tire. That was a couple summers ago. was not on the list of things that I was hoping would happen. And we ended up being stuck, not stuck. We stayed in Sioux City for a few nights while we got it worked out. Bless you, Sioux City. But this is a picture for life. And I think what I love, actually, is that God's not immune to that. God's experience of that is not, not other. Because in the book of Genesis, you read there's family strife. Like there's brothers who not only want to get rid of one another, they actually take steps to do that. There's this familial conflict in the earth and there's this disobedience. There's these people that they're not interested in what God has to say. They don't want to walk with him. They don't want to listen to his commands They don't actually want relationship with him. Like, is there anything more painful on planet Earth than to come to a moment where you realize there's someone and they just don't want relationship with you? Like, you used to be friends. There was a moment when you were connected, and now there's not. And so Genesis chapter 6, the thoughts of the heart of humankind was only evil all of the time. And so, just a question today, like, you know, what's the, what's the big deal with thoughts? Like, it's just the thoughts of the hearts of humans that were evil all the time. Like, why does this matter? We've had, we have a million thoughts every single day. Like, like, why are they so important? Well, one of the things that we can say is that thoughts shape our perspectives and our practices. Like the things that you and I think about, they're, they're going to shape how we view ourselves, how we view the world, how we view God, and then those perspectives are going to lead us to a different set of practices. And so it's important for God's people to have a, a clear picture of who we actually are. I'm not going to pretend to know what goes through your mind when you step in front of a mirror and what you think about. 
and what you see. But it's important for the people of God to know that when God looks at you, like what he calls you, how he refers to you, loved and holy. Like that's what we see in the scripture. Beloved of God and holy. Because of what he has done, not because there's like anything about being Dave that is holy, but because the Holy Spirit of God has spoken that over me and called that out of me again and again and again, set apart for a special purpose. And there's a lot of people following God, walking around, and that's just not what they see about themselves, and it's definitely not what they see about others belovedness and holiness. And I just wonder, this isn't the message today, but I just wonder what would happen to our world if we could get our arms around that a little bit more. That our perspective would be that other people are beloved of God and other people have been set apart. Like how would that shape our world? It would shape our practices But God is grieved in his heart and he's filled with pain. There's just a lot of things for God to be sad about in the opening pages of Scripture. Again, we're 49 pages in. This is five minutes into the movie. This is 10 miles down the road. This is the moment I was watching my favorite baseball team and I had somebody come over and we were going to have a party because my baseball team was in the playoffs can I tell you, it was the first inning and it was 10 to 0 and we were losing. It did not start very well and it was over before people even got their hot dog in the stadium and sat down. Just pack it up. Back up the moving truck. Let's just move on. This is what's happening in the scripture. 49 pages in. And God says, I'm going to remove humankind from the earth. Can I tell you that I think God says this with tears? Can I tell you that this is not like a joyous occasion? Can I tell you that he says this with grief? That there's something that I have created and evil has taken over. Like the entire lawn is only weeds. There's no plants, there's no grass. Evil's taken over because the thoughts of humankind was only evil all the time. And God's got to do something about that. But then we find in chapter 6 that Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's this Hebrew word, chen, favor. Uh, this is the first word that I can find in the Old Testament, 49 pages in, six chapters in, where grace walks on the stage of Scripture. Because Noah finds favor in the eyes of God. Like, Noah's just a guy. Like, he's just a person. There's nothing special about him. He's not even called righteous yet. He gets called righteous later in chapter 7, but in here, in this moment, he finds favor in the eyes of God. And God extends that grace to him. And you know how this works. Like, grace is the, the great relational preservative Right, like some of the food that you have in your house, some of it lasts a long time because there's unnatural stuff in there. 
Like, I don't know how long an Oreo lives, but longer than a banana. So why is that? Right? There's some preservatives. And in relationship, grace is going to be the, relation, the preservative that allows the relationship to handle the ups and the downs, the ebbs and the flows. And so without grace, without pain, all we have is destruction. All we have is a world where evil has taken over and it's grabbed the good creation of God by the throat and it's squeezed all of the life out of it. But Noah finds favor in the eyes of God. He's just this guy. He's like you and he's like me and he's got a family and he's got a daily routine and he's got wounds, he's got doubts, he's got shortcomings. And you keep reading in the Genesis account, he's going to have a moment at the end that's not too good. That's really embarrassing for his family. And it involves how many clothes he has on and what he has chosen to drink that day. He's just a guy. But God gives him favor, gives him grace. But then what I love is that he extends a task to him. And isn't that how it works? That God gives us grace. But then he also gives us this task. Like he gives us a calling to live out. Like a thing to do and a place to go. And something to carry. And so in the first section, we see that Noah and his family, they enter the ark. God says to Noah, take your family into the ark. And this is beautiful. Because I have found you righteous in this generation. I've found you righteous. In Hebrew, it's this word that actually means to see. I've seen you righteous, ra'ah. I've seen you as righteous in this generation. And in every generation, each and every one of us has to work out what it actually means to have relationship with God. It's not like, what kind of a relationship with God did my parents have? What kind of a relationship with God did my Sunday school teacher have or someone that I respect? Like, what did that look like? No, every generation Because God doesn't have grandchildren. He has sons and daughters. So it's not what's happened in my family, but how do I work out for myself how to love God and how to love people? But what a thing to be said, that I have found you righteous. I've seen you righteous. Not to be found popular, not to be found impressive, Not to be found successful or powerful, but righteous. Like, it's this church word number 916. Like, what does it actually mean to be righteous? Like, to walk in the way that you have been created to walk. So, what does that actually mean? Like, to to be in right relationship with God, where there's peace and there's harmony and there's honor. And what does it mean to be in right relationship with the other people who are around you? Like you can't be a righteous person and to be, not be in right relationship with the people that God has put around you. It's part of what it means. And so I think a question that's lifted out of the text is like, how do we desire to be seen? Do we want to be seen as righteous? Or do we actually want to be righteous? The way that I think about righteousness is to not be warped. You know, like if you're going to build a deck, 
on the back side of your house. You're going to be careful about what kind of boards you choose for that deck, if you're wise. If you're unwise and you want to build a deck next summer too, use warped boards. Go ahead. It's fine. But, but how can you tell if a board is warped or not? Right? It's hard to know just by looking at it. You have to place it against a, a board that is, that's straight, that doesn't have all of the warped quality to it. And so to be a righteous person is to not look at the external circumstances or to your feelings or to what you see in the world, but what do you see and hear and receive from God? And then, verse, then God says to Noah, take seven of each clean animal and two of each unclean animal into the ark. I have to be honest with you, this might be the moment where I'm out. Like, I'm like, that's a lot of animals that you want me to take into that boat. And what's the plan? For what? Why? What's, just gather the animals, the snakes, too? Like all the birds? I don't know how you would gather a bird and get it into, I don't know. I see my neighbors like calling for their dogs to come to the front lawn. I don't know how you get all the species of birds into the actual ark. I think we read the Bible like it's a fairy tale. And we don't actually consider like what this would be like if you're Noah, if you're Noah's wife, if you're Noah's child. So Noah can't even get his kid to wear a diaper, but he's got to get all of these animals on this ark. Like, we actually need to think about this as if this is like true. And there's something in this, there's a way of life that we're supposed to have because of this. Like the Noah story is not just like a theme for the church nursery. Right? How many of you grew up in a church like that? Where it's like, it's the only option. You walk into the nursery, there's all the animals and there's Noah. We cut out the half of the story that we don't want to talk about, but that's fine. We need to read this like there's something for us in it. And then he says that he's going to give, he gives Noah a week, seven days to accomplish gathering all of these animals before he opens the heavens and he's going to send a rain that's going to last for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. If you count up all the days they were in the ark, you ever done that? I did it this week. 370 days in that boat. And you think like, oh, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but they're in there for much longer than the 40 days and 40 nights. And you know how this works. Like even when the storm stops, like you're still in that same season. Just because it's not raining anymore doesn't mean that there's not pain and hardship involved. And then in verse 5, we see that Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Every single thing. He didn't leave anything unfinished. This is a picture of Noah's faithfulness. That he did everything the Lord commanded. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, what I think about is I think about all the unfinished stuff that God has called me to. The things that I have left 67% done for God. Like, anybody have any of those things? Like, in your world, in your heart, and God has called you to something, and it's just like in process still. You're like, working on it. It's on the list. What's beautiful about Noah is that he doesn't leave any of that unfinished. And then we see that Noah, his, the way that he is contrasted with Adam. So, 
Like Adam loses the protective environment of Eden. Why? Through disobedience. Like he doesn't want to walk with God. He doesn't want to honor him. He doesn't want to serve him. But then Noah, through obedience, receives protection. So if we would wonder, like, does obedience matter? Like, is it actually important to God? It's very important to God. Because Adam loses Eden through disobedience. But through obedience, Noah receives protection. And I'm not talking about, don't misquote me, I'm not talking about protection from hardship. God does not protect you from hardship. He does not protect me from hardship. Nobody sitting in these beautiful chairs today is going to be protective, protected from hardship because you obey God. Not for a second. What will you be protected from? That's an amazing question. I'm glad you asked. You will be protected from destruction. Not from hardship, but from being destroyed. Then in verse 6, we see that God's instructions are obeyed. Just a throwaway verse, Noah's 600 years old. On the 17th day, the second month, it's sort of infuriating to me how specific the Bible can be at some points. And then at other points, it's like, oh no, say more about that. But here, 600 years old, 17th day, second month. And then water is coming from two directions, if you notice in the text when Travis read it. That water is coming from above and water is coming from below. From the springs of the deep, it burst forth. And then the floodgates of heaven opened. So what's going on here? This is creation in reverse. Like the water is coming from up above and it's coming from below. And this is creation in reverse because what's happening at creation, what's happening at creation is there are, there are boundaries to the waters. But here, all of that breaks loose. And God releases those restraints, and the chaos overwhelms the created order, everything that has been created. And then in verse 17 to 24, everything outside of the ark dies. The verse, verse 19 in, in Hebrew reads that the waters prevailed very, very. It's like what a four-year-old would say. The waters prevailed very, very. Like it wants to show us that like this is, this is horrific. This is dark. And then in verse 20, the waters cover the mountains. Like we, we're told like 20 feet above the mountains, there's water. And I think we're all witnesses to this in our own life in maybe a way that we might not always consider. Like the thing in your life where you're convinced, oh, like this is never going to find itself submerged underwater. Like if there's one thing I can hold on to, it's this. But then water covers that thing and that thing's lost. Because the image of that is so amazing to think about. And I know we don't have a lot of mountains around here, but you've seen a mountain before. That the chaotic waters cover even that. Like the chaotic waters cover even your financial security. Like all the zeros or the lack of zeros you have in your bank account. The water covers that. Like even the, the moment inside of our 
families, the people inside of our families that give us a lot of security. Like it's possible for the waters to cover that. Like the, the job that we do each and every day that gives us identity and purpose. Like that's something that can be lost because for the people of God, we're not protected from hardship, but we are protected from destruction. And there's something that I read this week that I never really considered with this story. I don't know, maybe like you, it had been a really long time since I'd read this story. This isn't one that like finds its way into like my daily time with God very much. Oh, I know, today, Tuesday, March 17th. How about we do some knowing the heart? That'd be good. We find that. Right? It's not something that finds its way there. Why is that? Because I know the story. Like I know what it says. I know like two by two by two by two, they went on the ark and they floated around for a while and there was a rainbow. And... Yeah, got it, thanks. Where's my shopping list? But there's something significant here that I missed for more than three decades of my life. And it's that the, the ark, the ark has no rudder, right? So the ark is not like a, a boat, that you can control the destination. So Noah and his family, they're out there in a world where there's only water and they are rudderless. They're being tossed by the wind and the waves and they can only wait and they can only hope. And so generations later, and Isaiah about a thousand years before Jesus, in a different generation with the same people, we find these words, even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Like, oh, was it possible for the people in that ark to want that desperately, like, get me out of here. Get me off of this thing. And have we ever had a moment like that in our walk with God, in our life with God? Like, get me off of this thing. On the playground growing up, there was one evil contraption that my friends would like to, to spin me on. And you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about, like, the, the old school right? Like before there was a lot of rules on the playground, right? So you kind of jump in the middle of this deal and you can kind of like stand around and you just get spun and spun and spun and spun. You know what I'm talking about? And don't touch it when the sun's out because it'll burn your face off. Anybody had that moment with God? Where you're just like on that thing and you're getting spun and spun. And if you want to know what it's like to be on the ark, step onto that thing. You walk into the hospital and you're on that thing. Like you step into the church and they're honoring the person who has passed away. You're on that thing. It's going around and around and around and around and around. You show up to work and they've shifted things around and there's a new person here a new person there and there's going to be somebody else in your seat and you kind of have to figure it all out you're on that thing you're trying to figure out as a parent like how in the world do you like raise a teenager in 2021 you're getting spun on that thing and i'll tell you my work with teenagers tells me that often as a teenager you feel that way too 
But you're on that thing getting spun around. All of the voices screaming at you to do this and pursue this. And this is worth your time. This is not worth your time. Why don't you do this? So church, we know what it's like to be on the ark. And maybe we didn't gather a bunch of animals. But we have stood in that moment. But then I love chapter 8. Chapter 8 and verse 1. Three words. I would argue that maybe these are some of the most important words in the entire Bible. We're on page 49. Six chapters in. And we just find that God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. And this is not a remembering like you forgot. This is not like recalling something. But this is to intervene. So God's remembering is to put the flood in reverse. And he sends a wind. And it's good that we remember that in the Bible, wind is a picture for the spirit of God. And there's a recreation that happens. But God has not like forgotten Noah so he remembers. It's like, oh my gosh, I think I love the oven on. Right? Anybody in that moment before? Oh my goodness, did I pull the garbage down? Like, it's not that kind of remembering. But it's a picture of God intervening for his people. God remembered Noah. And I just think it's good for those of you who are sitting here this morning, who are watching this later, that if God remembered Noah, why would he not remember you? Because Noah's just a dude. He's just a guy. And he's trying to figure this out. Like what it actually means to be a human being. And I will tell you my experience in what I get to do is that a lot of people do not have a picture of God in a sense that he would remember them. A lot of people feel forgotten by God. And so this verse, Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah. He intervenes. And he sends wind. And he dries up the whole earth with the wind. And so we can look way later, with the band up as we close today, we can look way later in the New Testament. And there's a moment, and there's three men, and they're all hanging on a cross. Two of them guilty, one of them innocent. And Jesus is the man on the middle cross. And he's been beaten, he's been punched, he's been spit upon, and he's hanging there waiting to die. Can I tell you in that moment, Jesus is on the ark. There's no rudder. There's no control. But he has emptied himself. It's what God has called him to, and so he steps into that moment. And he's being ridiculed and insulted. And, and then there's a moment the, the man on his left turns to him and just asks a simple question. And he turns to him and says, will you remember me? And would that be a 
well, would that be a great prayer for us to pray to God? God, as I step into work today, would you remember me? God, as I step into this really difficult conversation, as I step into the doctor's office, into the hospital, teachers back into school in fall, I'm not trying to take you there yet. I know, don't <laughs> scowl at me. But would you remember me? Stepping into a difficult conversation with a child of yours, with a teenager you love, God, would you remember me? And Jesus turns to the man. And what does he say? Surely I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Notice he doesn't say, surely today you will go to paradise. No. He says, you will be with me in paradise. We will be together because I'm a God who remembers. And it's not that I need to call to mind the multiplication tables, but I'm going to step in decisively in this moment and bring rescue and restoration. And there's a lot of joking in the church about the afterlife in heaven and St. Peter at the gate. And so when you get up there, like you knock on a door and like St. Peter, like, right? It's like a church joke thing. There's the whole thing. And I don't know how this is all going to work out in the moment. I've got some ideas that we don't have time for today, but I just have to imagine, you know, this man on, on the cross who's been told today he will be with Jesus in paradise, stepping into that eternal moment in in heaven. And St. Peter, or whoever it is, right? Thomas, somebody else is there and and asks him why he's here. I mean, did you do, did you like do Sunday school stuff? Is that kind of why you're here? And did you pray a prayer? Is that kind of why you're here? Do you know the stories? Is that why you're here? Like, did you make it to church enough times in the summer? Is that kind of why you're here? And I don't know about you, but I just imagine Noah, and I imagine this man looking at whoever that is and just saying, the man on the middle cross told me that I could come. The man on the middle cross told me that I could come. That's why I'm here. Not because there's anything about what I have done. It is not first person faith, this is third person faith. That I didn't do it, but God did it. I didn't send a wind to, to stop the chaos, but God did. And it's just good, it's a good word today, church, to know that you're remembered by God. And you step into eternal life forever with him. Because the man on the middle cross told you that you could come. And so if that's true, it's actually not about all of the things that we might desire to do or to say. To be worthy enough to step into that moment. But we have a Jesus who knows what it is to be on the ark. Remembers you, and he remembers me. We pray with me, God. We thank you so much for today.